Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Tonight we are in Isaiah 49. The last time that I was standing here, we looked at Isaiah 48 and got into the first seven verses of Isaiah 49. But we're going to go back to Isaiah 49, verse 1, try to cover the whole chapter tonight. But let's lay out a couple of principles right here at the beginning, just to remind everybody the approach that we take to reading the Bible. This is the section of Isaiah where he is talking about the servant, who by Isaiah 52 and 53 will be the suffering servant. Pretty much every Christian church, regardless of whether they are Reformed, non-Reformed, even Catholic, regardless of their eschatological position, pre, post, mid, ah, whatever they are, they all agree that Isaiah 53 is quite genuinely, quite specifically about Christ. And to this very day, there are still books being published about the gospel in Isaiah. And any time that you see that title, you know that they are making a beeline to Isaiah 53. And they usually don't have to do a great deal of interpreting in order to make it point to, in order to make it be about Jesus Christ. The descriptions in Isaiah 52 and 53 are just so obviously Christocentric, so obviously messianic, that you don't have to do a lot of interpretive work to get there. And so my point is, and I do have one, that all Christians agree across the board. Isaiah 53, that's about Christ. And that's true. And it's genuinely true. And it's inarguably true. And the prophet Isaiah was seeing the reality of the Messiah to come, and he writes about it in Isaiah 53, and that's inarguable. Isaiah 49 is just four chapters before that. Same prophet, same section of the book of Isaiah, still talking about the servant, the suffering servant. And so it doesn't take a whole lot of interpretive skill in order to understand what Isaiah 49 is saying. And yet what Isaiah 49 says, though I would argue that it's every bit as obvious and true as Isaiah 53 is, and yet people will argue with Isaiah 49 because it says things that people struggle with. That people say, well, that, that's about Israel. And those are promises of God to Israel made through Christ to national Israel. And so that doesn't fit with my scheme or that doesn't fit with my eschatological view or that just doesn't fit with what my denomination has always believed. And therefore, Isaiah 53, yes, absolutely. Word for word, every bit of it, I agree definitely about Christ. Isaiah 49, eh, jump ball. So we're going to read Isaiah 49. And the assumption is that whatever it says here is just as valid, just as provable, just as genuinely the word of God and the prophetic word through Isaiah, just as genuinely prophecy to come as Isaiah 53 is. We're not going to argue with it. We're going to read it and agree with it because it says what it says. Along the way, we'll do a little bit of word study, but this does not require a great deal of interpretation. The language sometimes does get poetic, but not hard to understand. The language does work in similes, figures of speech, and yet not hard to interpret. Very plain on its face, very understandable. And at the end of this chapter, we're going to read God himself define himself as 
all flesh will know that I, Yahweh, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Now, who is Jacob? Jacob is national Israel. Regardless of what your particular position or eschatology might be, even the church Israel replacement crowd never argues that the church is Jacob. They might try to say the church is Israel, but Jacob is the name that God used here to remind Israel who they were to begin with, that they were always sinful, that they were always heel catchers, that they were always supplanters, and yet God says, I'm your redeemer. Very much the same as how he deals with us because we are sinful, because we are depraved, because we can't save ourselves, and so he is our redeemer despite our sinfulness. And he says to national Israel, who he calls Jacob, I am your redeemer because you need a redeemer because you are in fact so sinful. So that theology of salvation is consistent throughout Old Testament and New. So let's start reading uh, chapter 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The reference to O islands, I told you four weeks ago, the last time I was able to stand here, is a reference to the Tin Islands. If you are in the Middle East, if you're in Jerusalem, the place that you are trading with that is the most distant area from you is what is known as the Tin Islands. We know it as Britain. But if you go through the Mediterranean Sea and you go past Italy and you go around Spain and you come up past the Gauls, then you get to that island. And so whenever God is speaking to the Gentiles to the furthest extent of the earth, he refers to them as O Islands. And so this is talking to Gentiles even from afar Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you people from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. If you would, Tom, look up Matthew 1, and you're going to read verses 20 to 21. And while I'm at it, Steve, look up Revelation 1, and you're going to read verses 12 to 16, and we will get there in just a moment. The Lord called me from the womb is obviously Jesus speaking first person. He, as the Messiah, is saying that the Lord God, the Father, called him and named him even as he was being formed in the body of his mother's womb. And that's exactly what we see. This is one of the evidences that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Messiah the fact that the angel Gabriel spoke to Mary, spoke to Joseph before Jesus was born and said this to them. If you would, Tom. And as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he, sh he will save his people from their sins. He was named by the angel Gabriel, the angel of the Lord, while he was still in his mother's womb. It's exactly what Isaiah predicted here. From the body of my mother's womb, he named me. And he made my mouth like a sharp sword. Obviously, from a symbolic standpoint, we would say, well, that doesn't mean literally that he has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. It means that the words of his mouth are going to divide the same way that the writer of Hebrews says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing to the soul and spirit, to the bone and the marrow. And yet, when you look at the book of Revelation, when Jesus presents himself to John on the Isle of Patmos, the image that John sees is of Jesus with a sharp sword in his mouth, satisfying this very prophecy from Isaiah. If you would, Steve, read Revelation 1, verses 12 to 16. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. 
and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So all I'm trying to demonstrate here is that it's unquestionable that Isaiah is talking about Jesus the Messiah and speaking of a relationship and a conversation between the Messiah and the Lord God, the Father God. So listen to me, you Gentiles. Pay attention, you people from afar. The Lord called me, the Messiah, from the womb and from the body of my mother he named me, and he made my mouth a sharp sword. And in the shadow of his hand he has concealed me, and he has made me a select arrow. In other words, the perfect, straight, favorite shooting arrow. He put me in his quiver because I am his choice instrument, the choice weapon of both defense and separation. So Christ here is already announced to be the choice one of God, the one that God is going to use both in judgment and in salvation. And in verse 3, he said to me, in other words, Jesus speaking, first person, God said to him, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. Now, as I mentioned four weeks ago, the very fact that Jesus refers to himself here as Israel has caused a tremendous amount of theological creativity. All it does say here is that the assignment, Israel, has been given to Jesus. It doesn't say that that proves that he is the true and genuine Israel to the exclusion of national Israel. It doesn't prove that the church is now the true Israel or the spiritual Israel or the genuine Israel. It doesn't prove any of those things. What it proves is that God referred to him by the nomenclature Israel. Well, what does that mean? Is he giving him a name there or is he describing him by using that word? The best way to understand it is to take a look at a more common word in the Old Testament, a word that we're all familiar with, the word Adam. If you go back to the very beginning of the book of Genesis, you see the word Adam in the Hebrew. And God calls the first creature, the first person that he makes, he refers to him by this name, Adam. But that word Adam means creature from the dust, creature from the red clay. And as a consequence, that word Adam also means to show a flushed face or to be rosy colored or to be reddish in color because man was made ruddy. He was made up of the red clay of the ground. But Adam also refers to a human being. In fact, in Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image. God, the Trinity, speaking in a Trinitarian collective plural way, says, let us make man in our image. That word man there is Adam. Let us make Adam in our image. According to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created Adam in his image, and in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So in that passage, Adam applies to both male and female. Created humans are referred to by the word Adam. And yet God called the first creature Adam. So ever since then, we have thought of that as being his name. But in fact, it is a description of him that he is red, that he is ruddy, 
In fact, 560 times in the Old Testament, we see the word Adam. And there's only one place that it is inarguably being used as a name. And that would be in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the genealogy of the people of Israel starts with the name Adam. So there's no question at that moment that it means a particular name. But the rest of the time, it can also be describing the characteristic of human beings. You understand that? So as we look into the limited language of Hebrew, we see words like this used many different ways. Same thing with the word Israel. That's why I took the time to explain it with the word Adam, because we're all familiar with that word. But the word Israel is used the exact same way. The word Israel is made up of Sarah, a root word that means to have power or can mean to be a prince. And the name El, which is the name of God, Israel. And so sometimes we define the word Israel as prince who has power with God. And that's a fair rendering of it. But if you were to look in the Hebrew dictionary and you look up the word Yisrael, what you'll find is it means he will rule with God or he will rule as God. That's the meaning of the word. So understanding that even though Jacob was given that symbolic nickname, and I refer to it as a nickname because God did not say your name from this point forward is Israel and only Israel, because God continued to call Israel by the name Jacob. But he gave him the nickname Israel because he was the one who contended with God and became prince who has power with God. But it also does mean he will rule as God and I think that's the meaning of the word that's being used here in Isaiah 49. He has said to me, you are my servant and you will rule as God. That's why the word Israel is there. It does not mean necessarily that Jesus is the ultimate or replacement national Israel. What it means is God has designated Christ himself as the one who will rule as God. So sometimes Hebrew words are used as names, sometimes Hebrew words are used as designations. So verse 3 then, he has said to me, you are my servant Yisrael, in whom I will show my glory, yet again more evidence that the word Israel there means he will rule as God. And in you, God himself is going to show his glory. But then we know that when Christ came to the planet, he was rejected. He came to his own. His own received him not. He ultimately was crucified. And so that's reflected in verse 4. But I said, Messiah speaking personally, but I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and for emptiness or vanity. Yet surely the justice due me is with the Lord, and my reward is with God. So it is prophesied way in advance here, 700 years before Jesus is on the planet, that his mission is going to look like a failure, because he didn't come and establish the kingdom to come because he wasn't accepted by his own people. He was rejected and he was a man of sorrows. And yet, the justice that is due him, the just deserts, the outcome, everything that Christ deserves, justifiably so, all of that rests with the Lord. In other words, it doesn't rest with people. It doesn't rest with the Jews who rejected him. It doesn't rest with the people who deny him. The justice that is due Christ actually rests with God and my reward for coming to the planet, for dying under the wrath of God, for redeeming the people that God gave me. That reward is from God. And now says the Lord who formed me in the womb to be his servant, 
to bring Jacob back to him. According to Isaiah, the purpose for which Jesus was born, the reason he was formed in the belly of his mother, the reason that he came to planet Earth was to bring Jacob back to God. So that's either going to happen or it's not. If it doesn't happen, Isaiah was wrong. If it doesn't happen, the Bible's wrong and the Bible lies. Or it just hasn't happened yet, but has to happen because that's the purpose for which God came. And don't forget that at the very end of this very same chapter, he's going to call, God is going to call himself, I'm your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. And the purpose of Christ is to redeem Jacob and to bring Jacob back to God in order that Israel might be gathered to him. That is in keeping with everything we've seen in the first entire portion of the book of Isaiah, the promise that God is going to bring all 12 tribes back to the land of Israel, that Jesus, David's greater son, is going to rule from Jerusalem I don't care what eschatological position that places us in. It's what Isaiah said. And in keeping with what Isaiah has said about the regathering of Israel, here he adds that the Messiah coming to the planet is for the purpose of accomplishing the regathering of Israel, the redemption of Jacob. And he's going to say much more about that in just a moment. For now says the Lord, verse 5, who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him in order that Israel might be gathered to him. For I, Christ speaking, for I am honored in the sight of Yahweh, and my God is my strength. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. Okay, so obviously Christ has come to the planet for the purpose of restoring Jacob and bringing Jacob back to God. But then God says to him, you know, that's not enough. That's not big enough. That's not a grand enough conclusion to everything I've got planned for you. It's not enough for you to just raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles. That's where we come in. The promise of Christ through God prophesied by Isaiah, those promises all belong to Israel. And the restoration belongs to Israel and the redemption belongs to Israel. The Messiah is the Messiah of Israel. And yet, God says, because it's not enough, and remember, he's saying this to the islands. He's saying this to the nations of the Gentiles, explaining to the nations of the Gentiles that this Jewish Messiah has heard from his father that it's not enough for him to just redeem Israel, but that he's also going to be a light to the Gentiles. So that, for this purpose, so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That's why he began by saying, listen up, you islands. Listen up, you people. That was to the very ends of the earth. You distant people, you faraway nations, all you Gentiles, listen up to the phenomenally good news that Christ is going to be a light to the Gentiles and the salvation of God is going to reach to the very ends of the earth. And all of that is said within the context of, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel. The purpose for why Jesus came to the planet, I say again, is to return Jacob back to God because Jesus is Israel's Messiah. But then the overflow of the love and grace, kindness and mercy overflows into even Gentiles who don't have the law, who don't have the prophets, who don't have the oracles of God, who are away from God, who are enemies of God who are adamantly resisting God, who, as we saw this past Sunday, are blind and in the dark, 
and hostile to God. And the overwhelming grace of God announces to those people that the Messiah who he is sending to Israel, who do have the covenants, who do have the promises, who do have the Abrahamic covenant, who do have the law, who do have the prophets. Okay, it makes sense that Israel's Messiah would come for Israel considering everything they've got. And the Gentiles don't have any of that. And God, by his astounding, overwhelming grace, says, listen up, you Gentiles. I'm going to make the Messiah of Israel a light to the Gentile nations so that my salvation may reach to the very ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and Israel's Holy One. To the despised one, he's now speaking to Christ, the one who men despised, the one who men killed came to his own and his own did not receive him to that despised one, to the one who was hated, who was abhorred by the nation, by the nation of Israel, to the servant of rulers. And he was, he was in front of Pontius Pilate and he did not open his mouth. He allowed human Gentile unbelieving enemies to cast judgment against him. He submitted himself to the kings of the earth. And so God calls him the one who's going to be a servant to rulers. Despite the fact that you were despised and abhorred and a servant to the rulers, servants to men, nevertheless, kings are going to see you and stand up in reverence to you. Princes will also bow down and do obeisance in front of you Because of Yahweh, the Lord, who is faithful, who is the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Okay, so those are the seven verses that we covered in brief four weeks ago. But I have to ask you at this moment, is anything in those first seven verses difficult to read and understand? The words are pretty plain. They're right on the page, and they say what they say. And so I think as we form our theological understanding and our biblical comprehension, we have to agree that, well, that's what Isaiah says. And we don't have to change it. We don't have to twist it. We don't have to make it go away. We really have to get in line with it, stand toe-to-toe with it, and accept that this is exactly what God said about the Christ to come. Verse 8 We are finally into the new material. That was all introduction and doesn't count against my time. So so we're going to be here a while. Get more water. (laughs) Verse 8, thus says the Lord, in a favorable time, I have answered you. In the Old Testament, we read that God set aside particular times, particular moments, feast days. And those feast days occurred on Israel's calendar year by year by year. And that word, feast, is actually a word that means set times of the Lord. God is a structured God. He is not of confusion. He is a God who has particular moments in time when he does and is going to do particular things. And so we read in the New Testament that in the fullness of time, Christ came. At the completion of the times that God had waited, now finally that moment occurred and Christ came to the planet. But that is perfectly in keeping with what Isaiah has said. Thus says the Lord, in a favorable time, at the appropriate time, I will answer you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. When Christ came to the planet, He came to save people. He came to die for people. That was the day of salvation. And sure enough, Christ did come at that particular time. And sure enough, God promised that he was going to aid him and lift him up to accomplish everything that he had come to the planet to accomplish. Which is why it's so important that when he was hanging on the cross, he said, it's accomplished. It's finished. Tetelestai. 
I've done it. I did everything I came here to do. And that is perfectly in keeping with what God had promised. In the appropriate time, I have answered you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. And I will keep you. And I will give you for a covenant of the people. I will give you as a covenant to the people. Now, this group of people right here is not the Gentiles. It is Israel, the people, singular group of people. That's the group of Israelites. And I will give you as a covenant to the people. Well, you get into Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a contemporary of Isaiah. They are both prophesying right around the time of the Babylonian captivity. You get into Jeremiah 31 and you read about the new covenant. That is the first telling at length of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31 and the declaration of the new covenant is then imported into the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. It is the longest verbatim quote in the New Testament and it is the new covenant. And the new covenant both in Hebrews and in the book of Jeremiah is made to a very specific people group. It reads a new covenant to the house of Judah and the house of Israel. It's very specific. And that is perfectly in keeping with what Isaiah has said here. I am going to make you a covenant for the people, for Israel. That new covenant, the new covenant God says is not going to be like the covenant I made with them when I took them out of the land of Egypt, which covenant they broke. Instead, it is the new covenant of salvation by grace through faith, the covenant through which you and I get to enter into covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But the fact that you and I are included in that promise and in that covenant does not exclude the people to whom the promise was originally made, which is the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Those are just plain facts. Keep your finger there in Isaiah. Go to the book of Malachi for a second. It's the very last book in the Old Testament. If you get to the book of Matthew, you've gone too far. Go back one. Look at chapter 3 of the book of Malachi, starting at verse 1. Speaking still to Israel, to erring Israel, to argumentative Israel, to sinful, rebellious in Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. By the way, Jesus did that. The very Lord that they were waiting for, the very Messiah actually did come to his temple and called it his temple. He said, my temple will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And he did come suddenly to his temple and look at the next phrase. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So the promise is very consistent. God is going to send Christ for the purpose of redeeming Israel The overflow of that redemptive work is also going to go out to the Gentile nations. And God is giving Christ specifically to Israel as the foundation of the new covenant. The blood of Christ is the blood of the new covenant. The life and death of Christ is the establishment of the new covenant. So just like Isaiah said, I'm going to keep you and give you for a covenant to the people. For what reason? To restore the land and make them inherit the desolate heritages. What land is he talking about? Same land he's been talking about for the first 48 chapters. The land of Jerusalem, the land of Israel, the land promised to Abraham. But it's desolate, especially during the Babylonian captivity. The northern tribes have all gone into Assyria and have been scattered among the nations. The southern tribes have been taken now into Babylon, and the land of Israel is laying desolate. But God says, I'm not going to leave it desolate. I'm going to restore the land to make Israel inherit the desolate heritages. 
the very thing that they inherited, the land that I portioned out to them, that I gave to every family of Israel. That is their heritage, and they're going to regain that desolate heritage. Saying to those who are bound, you're free, go forth. Saying to those who are in darkness, show yourselves, come out of that darkness. Along the roads, they're going to feed. The roads were usually rocky areas where nothing grew. And here he's saying, even along the roads, there's going to be plentiful food. Things are going to grow along the roads and the trampled down areas. And their pastures are going to be on the bare heights, on the rocky grounds where there are no pastures. There's going to be pasture land. That is all language of the restoration of the land. The land is going to spring forth in food and in abundance. And in chapter 10, or in verse 10, it's going to spring forth in water. They will not hunger. They will not thirst. Neither will the scorching heat or the sun strike them down. And he, God, who has compassion on them, will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. And I will make all my mountains to a road, and the highways will be raised up. The purpose of that phrase, the point of that phrase, is that God is going to create a smooth passageway for the people of Israel to return to their land from the multiplicity of places where God has scattered them. I didn't just make that up. The next verse says so. My highways will be raised up, and behold, these shall come from afar, and lo, these will come from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sinem. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth in joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. So even heaven is in full agreement with everything God is doing. Heaven itself is celebrating and glorifying God for the fact that God is doing exactly what he has always said he's going to do. He has said all the way along that he was going to punish Israel. He was going to correct Israel, but he wasn't going to abandon Israel. He was going to restore Israel. He was going to restore the land because the land is his, and he's going to restore Jerusalem because it's the place where he chose to place his name. And when he does it, which Isaiah said he's going to do it, but notice he's going to do it through Christ. And the Gentile nations need to recognize that it is the God of Israel doing it as he's doing it. That even in the midst of that, all of heaven breaks into praise, breaks into song and says, you go, God. You go do the things you said you're going to do. So I think that we as the church of Jesus Christ ought to also be praising and celebrating God for the fact that he said he's going to do that, and then he's going to do it. Or the Bible's not true. Okay, quick question. Have I said anything yet that chapter 49 of Isaiah doesn't say? Nope. I've read every word so far up to verse 13. Are any of those words, any of those sentences, any of those passages difficult to understand? There's no difficult words. The words are very plain. It's just that the words say things that some people just don't like. And so people try to twist those words, try to reinterpret those words that don't need interpretation. They say what they say. And so in verse 14, he's going to turn his attention to Zion itself. Mount Zion is where Jerusalem is. The same way that Jesus cried out over Jerusalem and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets, how often I would have gathered your children as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. So the same way that Jesus addressed Jerusalem, here Isaiah is going to address Zion, which is Jerusalem. Zion has said, the Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. At that moment in time, Jerusalem 
has been attacked. The walls have been breached. The gates have been torn open. Nebuchadnezzar and his armies have taken the people out of that city and transported them to Babylon. And so Zion is forsaken and forgotten. God's answer is this. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? No, nature would tell you no that a mother who is nursing her child is not going to forget about her child, is not going to abandon her child. And so God uses that as an example in order to say, I haven't forgotten about you, Zion. And then he says, yes, you know what? You errant children, you errant people, maybe there is a mother somewhere who would forget about her child and have no compassion for the son of her womb. Even these might forget, but I will not forget you. Okay, so the God who doesn't change just said to Jerusalem, I won't forget you. It seems like you're abandoned. It seems like I have forgotten you. But verse 16 says, this is part of his saying, how do I forget you? He says, behold, I've written you down. I have inscribed you on the palm of my hands, and your walls are continually before me. I see you continually, Zion. Your builders hurry. Your destroyers and your devastators will depart from you. In other words, you're going to be rebuilt. Lift up your eyes and look around. All of them gather together and they come to you. That's the same thing he just said. All the places that I've driven them to, I'm going to create smooth roads and highways for them so that they can come back to the very place that I gave them in perpetuity. I'm not going to give up on my promise. I'm not going to forget about Jerusalem. I'm not going to forget about Zion. And I'm not going to forget about my people Israel. I'm going to regather them. I'm going to reestablish them. And your builders are going to rebuild the city. And the people who destroyed the city and the devastators are going to go away completely. They're going to depart from you. So lift up your eyes. Look around, Zion. And all of your people are going to gather together. And they will come to you. As I live, declares the Lord. Okay, now God just used himself as the foundation for his promise. And said, as long as I'm alive, this is a promise. And how long is God alive? Forever. So this is a forever promise that God is going to reestablish Israel, bring them back to their land, establish Zion again. All of them are going to gather together and come to you, the walls of Zion, as I live, declares the Lord. You shall surely put on all of them. In other words, this is just a great personification of the walls of Jerusalem. He says to Zion, you're going to wear the people that I gather like jewels. They're going to be dressed up on you like a bride ready for her wedding day. The day that a woman gets most dressed up on her wedding day, that's what it's going to be like when you put on the people of Israel returned to establish Zion. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall surely put on all of them as jewels and bind them as a bride. For your waste and your desolate places and your destroyed land, surely now will be too cramped for all the inhabitants. It's a huge contrast. God says, right now, there's nobody in you. But I'm going to bring so many people to you that they're going to complain it's too cramped. It's too crowded. Zion is going to be overflowing with the people of God. Those who once swallowed you are going to be far away. And the children of whom you were once bereaved will yet say in your ears, this place is too cramped for me. Make room for me that I may live here. And then you will say in your heart, who has begotten these for me? 
since I have been bereaved of my children and I am barren and an exile and a wanderer, then who raised up, who reared all these? Behold, I was left alone. From where did all these come? This is God's way of saying, what's going to happen when I return the children of Israel to Jerusalem, to Zion? When that happens, it's going to be so unbelievable that even Zion itself is going to say, how did this happen? I was abandoned. I was bereaved of my children. And now there's so many of them, they're to overflowing. How did this happen? Verse 22, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my right hand to the nations, to the Gentile nations, to the very places where I have scattered the children of Israel. I will lift up my hand to the nations and I will set up my standard to the peoples. And they, the Gentiles, will bring the sons of Zion in their bosom. It means they'll clutch them and bring them and they will bring your daughters and they will be carried on the shoulders of the Gentiles and kings will be the guardians of your people and their princesses are going to be your nurses. And they, the Gentile leaders, will bow down to you with their faces in the dust and lick the dust of your feet. And you, when all that happens, when I accomplish all that, you will know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I am God Almighty. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. Okay, he said that in the context of the reestablishment of Israel. And Israel is waiting for their restoration and for their ultimate redemption. And as long as they have that hope, God is not going to put them to shame. In other words, God himself is declaring, I'm going to do this. I'm going to accomplish every little bit of this. Otherwise, he has put Israel and Zion to shame. And God is not going to let his name be profaned that way. Now he uses another allegory to explain how he has not forgotten Zion. And he has not forgotten the people of Israel. Can the prey be taken from the mighty man? If you see a big mighty guy, big strong guy, coming in from the woods with a deer he just is taking home for his family to eat, are you going to be able to take that from that guy real easily? No, he's going to fight you for it. Well, that's what God just said. Can the prey be taken from a mighty man? By the way, the allegory he's creating is these mighty Gentile nations have my people Israel. They've put them into slavery. They're not going to give them up easy. And yet God says, but they will to me. I'm going to go get my people and nobody's going to be able to withstand me. Can the prey be taken from a mighty man? Or can captives be taken from a tyrant? Surely thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty man will be taken away and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued for I will fight. I will contend with the one who contends with you. You, my people, you, Israel, you, Zion, the one who fights with you, I will fight against and I will save your sons. I will. When God says I will, is there any question about whether he will? No doubt. There's no doubt about it. I will save your children. I will save your sons. And I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh. They're going to consume themselves. And they will become drunk on their own blood as with sweet wine. And all flesh, all humanity, all Jews, all Gentiles, all flesh will know that I, Yahweh, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer. I am, after all, the Mighty One of Jacob. What a God. What a God. Okay, so that's chapter 49 of the book of Isaiah. And it says what it says. And it says it very plainly. 
says it very distinctly, and it doesn't say it with a whole lot of controversy outside of man-made controversy. So as I said, once again, we just have to stand toe-to-toe with what the Bible actually says, and if the Bible says that God is going to one day bring the kingdom to Israel, that they are going to be a great and mighty nation, and that the blessings that the Gentiles receive are the blessings that flow through Jerusalem, through Israel to the Gentiles, that's everything Isaiah has described to us so far. If the Bible says that God is going to restore Zion until it is overflowing with the people that he has gathered from the distant nations, the very places that he scattered them. If the Bible says that Jesus Christ is also the redeemer and establisher of Israel who is going to restore Jacob in his relationship to God. If that's what the Bible says, and it does, then we just have to say, yeah, We just have to say, amen, God, if that's what you said you're going to do, do it. And there is just no way, theologically, there is no way to construct some theology that says that's all about the church. Because the language is very specific. It's not about the church because the church is never called Jacob. It's very clear who he's talking about. The same people he's been talking about for the previous 48 chapters. The same people he's going to talk about for the whole rest of the book. The very people for whom the suffering servant has come in Isaiah 53. And so we just have to say, that's what the Bible says. And that, as a Bible believer, is what I believe. Questions? It was clear. Comments? Even the dogs can eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Absolutely. That'd be the Gentiles. Yep. When the Gentile woman... The Gentile lady who said it. Yeah. And by the way, Jesus' first answer was even more interesting because she came looking for help and he said it's not right to give the children's bread to dogs because she was a Gentile. So the children is Israel. And it wasn't right to give what belonged to Israel to the Gentiles. And then she says, yeah, but even the dogs get to eat the crumbs from the master's table. And he complimented her faith to the point where we're still talking about her all these years later. But that's consistent theology that Jesus recognized that his purpose in coming was for Israel primarily and secondarily to the Gentiles. He is a light to the Gentiles, but not to the exclusion of the fact that he is the redeemer of Israel. Anything else? That's the same thing we saw last night in the book of Acts. Paul says the same thing before Agrippa, that uh, this promise that was made in the Old Testament, where he says explicitly there, the 12 tribes. To the 12 tribes. And he says that after the resurrection, after Pentecost, he says the promises still belong to the 12 tribes of Israel. It's the same thing he says in Romans 9, 10, and 11. So the Bible's really consistent about it. It's just the church and 2,000 years of creative theology that's become inconsistent about it. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.